Last week we read the, to the end of Perak Aleph and Yeshua. The last portion of the Perak discusses the Yeshua reminds the tribes of Reuven and Gud and Menashe, half of Menashe, reminds them of the deal they had made with Moshe Rabbeinu that they had asked for the territory in Avra Yardin on the east side of the Yardin. They had already conquered from Sichon and Og. And Moshe said that he would do that, they could have that, on condition that they entered, that they continued to travel with the rest of the Jewish people, entered Eretz Canaan at the vanguard of the army and fought, uh, for the, fought to conquer the rest of Eretz Canaan. After they did that, they would be able to return to their families. They, they left their families behind, women and children and animals behind in Avra Yardin. After that, they could return and take possession of the, the land in Avra Yardin. And they said, absolutely, we will, we, we absolutely intend to abide by our commitment, and we absolutely pledge loyalty to you, we pledge fealty to you, we will do kol asher we will do everything you have commanded us, we will go wherever you send us, we're absolutely, we're, we're, we're at your service, we will do whatever you need us to do, we will obey you, kol asher shamanu el Moshe just as we obeyed Moshe, we'll obey you, May Hashem be with you. Raki, Hashem imach. Only Hashem should be with you. Moshe, as he was with Moshe. And then the last pasuk, the last pasuk in the parak, pasuk Yuches, The last pasuk says, "Kol picha." Any man who shall rebel against your commands, lo will not obey your instructions. Anything you command him, you must. He shall be executed. He shall be put to death. Only they told Yeshua, we need you to be strong. You have to be strong. This pasuk of He shall die, you must. This, this pasuk is the source of the concept of of Moribu Malchus, of, of rebelling against the king. The idea that a, that a, a citizen of the, of, the, of the nation, of the Jewish people, has an obligation to obligation to obey the commands of the king, and that that's a capital offense, not obeying the morning, and that uh, not obeying the king is a, is a capital offense for which he is, which he's put to death. The, the Torah talks about the king, the king as the institution of government uh, anticipated by the Torah. You shall appoint the king, describe certain halachas about the kings, he shouldn't have too many wives or horses, and so on. But uh, the basic rule that people have to obey the king, and if they don't obey the king, then that's a capital offense for which they die, that is derived from this pasuk. Yoshua was not exactly a king, of course. The, he's not referred to in Tanakh as a king. The first king we know in, in the Jewish people was Shaul HaMelech, King Shaul, who, who, who appears in Sefer Shmuel, which was actually centuries later, after the period of the Shoftim, the judges. The judges were other leaders who, again, are not referred to as kings. People like Yiftach and Shimshon and, uh, and Boaz and, and um, Gidon and so on. So they aren't referred to as kings, they're Dvorah. They're referred to as Shoftim. They were obviously king-like leaders of some sort, but they weren't actually called kings generally. Shaul HaMelech is the first king, and then Sefer Malachim, Book of Kings, is all about the kings of the Jewish people. We know that that starts from David HaMelech. Shaul's uh, kingdom came to a tragic end, and the kingdom didn't stay with his family. It passed, it passed uh, to, to David HaMelech. In, in the Torah, we have the concept of Malchus based David. We refer to it all the times in, all the time in Tefillah. We said in Shmon Esrei, Eztemach David Avdecha Meheres Atzmiach. Mashiach is eventually going to emerge from the from the from the house of David. 
throughout the first temple. There were there were leaders of Malchus based David in the second temple, and after the second temple, there were other types of officials, the Reish Delusa, other leaders from David. And then, of course, in the beginning of Sefer Malachim, the Davidic dynasty fractured, and the, the Jewish people fractured. There was Malchus based David and Malchus, and Malchus Yisrael, the kingdom of Israel, of the ten tribes, the, beginning with Yeravim and Nevat, and many other kings. But so we have all kinds of kings, primarily in the first temple period. Yoshua is not directly referred to as a king, but he, in some contexts he is assumed to have had some of the halachic religious status of a king. Similarly with Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu was, of course, uh, the unparalleled leader of the Jewish people. Lokom Navi Yisrael Moshe Od. Moshe is primarily referred to as a great Navi and the lawgiver, the, the, the transmitter of the Torah. But in, in some contexts in rabbinic literature, he is referred to as a king. So in this context as well, Yoshua, the, the Bnei Gara Bnei Ruvain and Menashe, they said, anyone who disobeys your commands will be, will, will be put to death. And Chazal understand that 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 is the law of the king. We're treating him, at least for this purpose, as a king. So this is the concept of Murid B'Malchus, he who rebels against the king, and the penalty is death. Now, the end of the Pasuk, the Pasuk says, Rak Chazak Ve'amat. Rak means but or only. That's a qualifier. That's always a, a limitation or a restriction. You have to be Chazak Ve'amat. You have to be strong. What does that mean? So the Mepharshim bring a Gemara. We'll turn to the Gemara in a moment. The Radak says, Rak Chazak Ve'amat. Darsh Rabbeinu Zal. Chazal explained, Yumas, the is a murid B'Malchus. Someone who rebels against the king is put to death. You might think that applies even if the king commands you to do something against the Torah, which is a sin according to the Torah. Talmud Lomar, Rak, only. Achen Varakin, Miutenhein. Achen Varakin in language of the Torah are always limitations, qualifications. They exclude something. The, the, the idea that you're supposed to follow the king and that that's punishable by death, that's only if what he tells you is not against the Torah. If it's against the Torah, if it's a sin, then the, this, this does not apply. They're all bag. The Ral Bag says the same thing when it says Rak Chazak Ve'amatz. When they qualify what they said by saying Chazak Ve'amatz, Ratzalomar she is Chazek Lisnayik Kol Divrei Torah. That you have to do your part, which is to follow the Torah. We'll do our part. We'll listen to you. We'll execute anyone who doesn't. But you have to do your part, which is to follow the Torah. If the king commands people to violate the Torah, Lo Yishmu Elav, they should not listen to him, unless one exception, Ela Imhayazel Afisha. Unless this was a temporary uh, override of the Torah's laws. We'll discuss that a little bit later. Temporary supersession of the Torah's laws. And the reason is because the king and the people are both mechuyiv to follow the Torah. So if he tells them not to, not to, not to follow the Torah, they don't listen to him. The Rabbi brings another pshat. He says, Chazak ve'amatz ma'od, that they were telling the king, we'll listen to you, but your job, you're the king. You have a job too. Your job is you have to be diligent and assiduous. You have to work hard on being the king. You can't just abandon the people. He says, because people need a king, people need a leader. So, yes, we have a duty to obey the leader. The leader has a duty to lead. You have a job. It's, it's, it's not just fun and games. You have a duty to lead. It's, it's, you can't just say, today I want to go on vacation and all the people, let the people take care of themselves. You have, you have a job to, to, to run the people. We'll do ours, which is to obey you, and you do yours, which is to lead the people. So that's another shot in what they were adding by Rak Chazak Ve'amatz. This idea that, again, on the one hand, Marib Malchus, a, a tremendously uh, strict and, and, strict and uh, powerful rule that everyone must obey the king, and if not, it's punishable by death. On the other hand, a major carve-out, a major exception for mitzvahs that go, for commands of the king that go against the Torah. This is discussed in the Gemara in a couple of places. 
Before we get to the Gemara, one, one, uh, one, one final pshat in, in what the rack is. So again, rack is a limitation, a qualifier. The first pshat is the pshat of Chazal, the Radak brings, the Rabag brings, that the king, the king's duty is to follow the Torah and not to issue commands against the Torah. And if he does, there's no obligation to listen to him. We're not supposed to listen to him. Second shot is the Ralbag. Second shot that the king has a duty to lead and not abandon the people. Third shot, this we'll see goes back to the Gemara as well. Third shot is Mitsudas David. Mitsudas David brings an explanation. Rakazak means Lano Shamardim. You have to punish people who rebel against you. You have to implement, uh, you have to preserve your, uh, your authority by, by punishing those who, who flout your commands. Velolim do not be mochel on your covenant. This again, this is a discussion in the Gemara, we'll, just, we'll, we'll, we'll see this soon, that the king is not supposed to be mochel on his covenant. We know, we'll see the Gemara in more detail soon, we know there is a, there are a number of people, according to Torah law, who a person is commanded to respect, a parent, a Talmud Chacham, a rabbi, a, uh, a king. Some of these people, the rule is, the, most of these people, as a matter of fact, the rule is they are allowed to be mochel their covered. The, a parent is allowed to say, I don't mind, you can do this, even if, let's say, the, let's say sitting in the parent's chair or something like that. But the parent has the right to say, I, I waive my right to a certain form of respect, you can do this anyway. But, so for example, the, the, the Gemara talks about how a, a child at the Pesach Seder, according to some opinions at least, is not supposed to do hasseh, but he's not supposed to recline and... and, and, and uh, and supposed to sit with uh, reverence in front of his father, but if the father's mochel, we say he's allowed to, and today we assume parents are mochel, that, they, that we don't have the same, the same kind of you know, strict relationship between parent and child, where the parent demands at all times this type of uh, reverence, so the parent is allowed to be mochel on his covered, but the, the king, the, the Matudas David says, is not supposed to, the king is not supposed to uh, relax and say, I'll just be one of the guys, you can call me by my first name, and you know, we'll, we'll have a beer together. The king is not supposed to do that, the king is supposed to preserve his dignity, preserve his, uh, his position of uh, a preeminence, and the, the people are supposed to revere him and, and have covered in Mara for him. He's not supposed to be Mokhlis covered. Again, we'll see more about this in the Gemara. So the idea of Mori B'Malchus, in particular the Mori B'Malchus in, 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 cases where, in cases where it's against the... In, in, cases, in, 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 case, in cases where it's against the... Where, where, where the king tells you to do something which is against the Torah, this is a this is a Gemara in Sanhedrin. The Gemara, it's a midrash and a Gemara in Sanhedrin. This is, this is a variety. There are a variety of different sources in Chazal that discuss this question of a king who tells you to do something which is against the Torah. So turning to them, we'll do the midrash first. The, the midrash in Bereishis Rabbah, the Midbar Rabbah. The midrash says that the midrash is going on a pasuk in Mishlei. It says Yireis Hashem Bni Melech. The the advice the, the Mishlei gives advice: fear God and fear the king. You should have Mora for Hashem and Mora for the king. So the Midrash brings an interpretation to this Pasuk. It says, Vamelech, it says you, should, you should fear the king, you should uh, have reverence for the king. You might think if the Melech tells you to do Avodazari, you should listen to him. Talmud Lamar, Yireh Hashem. Before the, before the reverence you have for the king is Yireh Hashem, you can't do Avodazari. And the Midrash cites a, a, a passage in Tanakh about this. This is what happened. We actually uh, we actually mentioned this uh, today. I think earlier in uh, earlier in Slichas, the story of Hanani Mishal Vazaria, Nebuchadnezzar ordered them to worship idols. They didn't listen. They said, We will not bow down. We will not worship your your god. We will not uh, bow to the golden the golden effigy that you built. Uh, that you that you that you that you, that you erected. Luchanetzer says uh, that um, 
Nebuchadnezzar says that uh, that um, he said that he said that uh, doesn't it say Anipi Melech Shmar? He told them, doesn't it say in Kohelas that it's important to obey the king? So they told him, Melachata, you are the king. We respect your authority. You can levy taxes on us. Lemisim but not there's a red line. Not when it comes to Avodazara. And uh, when it comes to when it comes to Avodazara, nothing doing. We're not bowing down to your Avodazara. So he says. So he says. Uh, so he goes, goes on and so and so, and they were willing to be uh, thrown into thrown. They were willing to uh, be thrown into the fire. So we say We ask Hashem to save us the way He saved uh, these great martyrs that were willing to martyr themselves for the principle of not doing avodah zarah, even if the king demands it, even though we accept that we have loyalty to the the, 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 the sovereign government, whether it's a Jewish king, Yoshua, uh, whether it's a non-Jewish king like Nebuchadnezzar, the Torah recognizes that we owe fealty to the king, to the government, whatever it is, but. There's a red line, not if he tells us to do Avodazara. So the, the, the Midrash gives the example of Avodazara, which is an extreme case. Avodazara, we know, is one of the worst sins possible, one of the most unimaginable transgressions. But the Gemara extends this to other Averis as well. The Gemara says it's not just Avodazara. Even if the king tells you to do some other kind of Avera, we do, we do not listen to it. The, this is a Gemara in Sanhedrin, on Daph Memtes. The Gemara says that Yoav, Yoav had killed had murdered a couple of people in the course of his yes, career. We, in the Haftarah we read, and uh, the Haftarah we read at the end of, uh, we read on some Haftarah, the Haftarah, which is the first, the, 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 which, is, which is the, I think it's Davon HaMelech dies, and he gives his last, uh, last testament, last instructions to his son Shlomo. He tells Shlomo that he should punish Yoav because of murder. Yoav had killed two men, Yoav killed Avner and Yoav killed Amasa. I'm sorry. Uh, Yo- Yoav, Yoav killed uh, Yoav killed Avner, and he killed um, he killed Avner, and later in the story he killed I think Amasa. We'll get to that. So the the Gemara recounts that what was the issue? Why did Yoav kill Avner? Why did he think he was justified in killing Avner? Why did why did uh, why did um, why did Davin Melech and others think he was not justified? So the Gemara says they. The Gemara so 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 the the Gemara says that I'm sorry that he killed Avner and he killed Amasa. So he killed um, so Avner was an issue about a question about Rodef that uh, Avner, that that Asahel Yoav's brother Asahel was was chasing Yoav's relative Asahel. I'm not sure how he's related, but he was chasing uh, he was chasing Avner in, in the course of battle in the course of. Uh, a clash they had, and Avner warned him to veer off, or he would have to kill him in self-defense. Stop chasing me, or I'll have to kill you. Asael kept chasing him. Avner killed Asael in self-defense. Yoav was angry that Avner had killed his relatives. So Yoav said, Yoav killed Avner. He said, I'm justified in killing you. The people said, but Avner killed Asael in self-defense. Avner wasn't a murderer. Avner's not guilty because he killed in self-defense. Yoav said it wasn't self-defense. He could have disabled him. He could have, uh, he could have incapacitated Asael without killing him. This is the question we have in all the, the police shootings and so on, whether the lethal force is justified as a last resort. It's not justified when there are other uh, less lethal uh, solutions. The question always is, the devil's always in the details. In the in the chaos and the fractions of a second, the, the the officer or the citizen has to make a to make a choice. 
it's very hard to figure out sometimes whether there is realistically a non-lethal alternative. Policemen are not trained to, uh, in the movies, you can shoot the gun out of somebody's hand. In the real world, you can't do that. It's not reliable. It's not practical. And the most when someone is posing an imminent threat, the most effective thing to do is to, uh, is to shoot to kill. And that's what they're trained to do, center a mass and so on. And that was actually this whole, that was, this is exactly the discussion the Gemara has, that Yoav told, Yoav told Avner, you're a murderer, you could have disabled Asael, you could have struck him carefully in such a way to have incapacitated him without killing him. Avner said, I couldn't, I was running for my life, I, I, had, to, I had to strike or be killed. That was the debate whether, whether, it's not even clear who was right, it's not even clear whether Yoav was right or Avner was right. That was the first discussion. That, that's not really our concern right now. The second discussion was about Amasa. Yoav killed Amasa. So, what was his justification for killing Amasa? Amasa was another, Yoav and Amasa were both generals of David. They were both uh, officers in his army. And Yoav killed Amasa. Uh, on some level, it sounds like Yoav was angry that he had been passed over for a position in favor of Amasa. He felt Amasa had been uh, a fair-weather friend of David, I believe, that Amasa had sided with, uh, with Avshalom and had only recently rejoined David, and, and, and he was passed over, Yoav was passed over, Yoav was bitter about it. But, on, but the Gemara says that Yoav had a much more legitimate grievance, a much more, uh, a much more righteous grievance against Amasa. So Yoav killed Amasa, so the Gemara says that Yoav's defense was, why did I kill Amasa? He said, Amasa was murdered by Malchus. Amasa was guilty of murdered by Malchus. He, he, he failed to do what the David commanded him. And it gives an example. The Melech told Amasa, David told Amasa, Hazikli Asish Yehuda. He, David needed to raise an army. He told Amasa, you go to Yehuda, raise me an army from, from Yehuda in three days. Shlosha Yamim. It says, V'yelech Amasa l'hazikis Yehuda. Amasa went on this commission to raise the army. And it says, Vayucha. He delayed. He didn't do it. He, that Amasa tarried. He, he didn't obey promptly and forthrightly. He didn't obey the order of David Amelech. So the Gemara says... So the so Yoav said he didn't obey the order. Amasa had a clear order: go get an army, prompt, promptly, uh, with that, with with, no, with with all deliberate speed. He didn't do it. He's married by Malchus. So the Gemara says Amasa had a legitimate reason why he didn't do it. Amasa achin verachin darash. Amasa, based on our pasuk, Amasa said, "I can't do this," because when because when Amasa came to the men of Yehuda to raise the army, he found them studying Torah. They were involved in learning, in learning Torah. So Amar, so Amasa said, what should I do? Should I disturb the Beit Midrash? Should I tell them to close the Gemaras and come out and, and fight? I can't do that, because the Pasuk says, we just read the Pasuk, we just said that they, they told Yoshua, Amar Malchus dies, everyone must obey the king under penalty of death. You might think that applies even if the study of Torah is at stake, even if listening to the king will involve the disruption of Torah study. The last words of the first parak, Rak is a miut. He was Darish Achen Varakin. So, so the so Amasa said, I have a uh, I can't do this. This is an unlawful order to, to, to disturb the obviously the king has to have an army at some point. If nobody's everyone's learning Torah all the time, the king has to somehow find an army. But uh, in this case, Amasa felt that the that, that these particular people shouldn't be disturbed. They were learning Torah, and the, the order to draft them was an unlawful order. Therefore, he was ordering them to disrupt. He's ordering them to disrupt the. To, he's ordering them to disrupt the Torah, and uh, and that was not legitimate. And therefore, therefore Amasa was not a was not a Maribu Malchus. Amasa therefore 
was uh, was not a Marva Malchus. So the, we had the Midrash Rabbah, which says and that an order to do Avodah is an unlawful order, and we don't obey it. And now we have the Gemara that says that an order to be Mavatal Torah is also an unlawful order, and that's also uh, something that you're not supposed to obey. Later in the same Gemara, the same Gemara on Daphne Tess, that the, the Gemara just says that actually Yov himself, Yov was all, Yov was making the righteous uh, argument here, everyone should listen to the king. And his opponents were saying, no, we can't listen to the king. Yomasu was saying, I can't listen to the king because it's an unlawful order. The Gemara says actually it was just the opposite. Yoav was the one who was once guilty of listening to an unlawful order. Yoav himself was once guilty of listening to an order of David, which, uh, listening to an order which was inappropriate, and the people he killed were actually better than him. So what, what's the issue? So the, so the Gemara says, the Gemara says that uh, the, 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 the Navi describes uh, the, the, the revenge against Yoav, the, the justice against Yoav. It says, the Hashem has damo al rosho, God will return the blood to his head, will punish him. He killed two men who were, David HaMelech, I think, said this, two men who were more righteous, who were better and more righteous than he was. Avner and Amasa, his two victims, were better and more righteous than Yoav. So, how were they better? They, Avner and Amasa, both understood this rule of Rak, Hazak, Be'amat. They darshan that we don't obey orders when, uh, when they, we don't obey orders when, the, when it's against the Torah, Yoav did not understand that. So uh, see, Yoav had a kind of uh, authoritarian approach. We listen to the king regardless, even if the order is unlawful. And I, I may have said this backward before, but, uh, but his victims understood that, no, we don't listen to an order when it, is, uh, when it is unlawful. Where do we find that Avner and Amasa disobeyed orders when it was unlawful? So Amasa, we said before, that he was ordered to draft the men of Yehuda and he refused because they were studying Torah. He felt it was an inappropriate intrusion on their Torah study. Avner, Avner is, a, this goes back to a story earlier in Sefer Shmuel, when Shoal was the king. Avner had been a, a leading general of, of Shoal. So Shoal, one of Shoal's most infamous uh, acts was that he massacred the city of Novirakon. When, when, when Shoal was trying to stamp out uh, David and his men, so David had taken sanctuary with the Kohanim of Nov. They had provided him assistance, food, assistance. They had aided him in his, uh, in, in his flight. Shaul was furious that they had supported his rival, David. So Shaul destroyed the city. He exterminated all the Kohanim of Nov. That was considered a uh, terrible, terrible sin on the part of Shaul. He had, he had murdered all the Kohanim of Nov. So the Rashi explains that when, when Shaul did this crime... So Shaul ordered his men, he ordered his servants, he said, He ordered his men, go kill the Kohanim of Nov. And it says, the Pasuk says, At least some of his servants refused, until one of them did carry out the order, but some of his servants refused to do it. And the assumption here is Avner was one of those servants. So Avner again refused an unlawful order. He was, he was ordered to massacre those who were not deserving of death. Whatever the Kohanim had done, it wasn't their fault. They hadn't realized that David was, uh, they had thought David was a loyal subject of Shaul. They hadn't, they hadn't realized that there was this rift between David and Shaul. Whatever, whatever the issues were, it was wrong, it was clearly wrong of Shaul to massacre the people of Nov. And Shaul made this illegitimate order. And some of his, some of his, some of his servants, some of his men, including Avner, said no. So both Avner and Amasa, at different points in their career, had refused to obey orders of the king because the orders were inappropriate. One was murder, it was inappropriate, the people were not deserving of death, so Avner refused to do it. The other was Bittal Torah, Amasa was ordered to draft the men of Yehuda, which he refused to do because that involved Bittal Torah. 
And Yov himself, Yov himself was, uh, did not do this. Yov himself, his position was, I guess he was consistent, he did not accept the excuse of Amasa that it, that it was uh, Bittel Torah. Yov himself was guilty, was guilty of this, of, of, of obeying an order. I was just following orders, uh, even though the order was unlawful and illegitimate. The issue was uh, the death of Uriah. One of Davra Melech's most uh, you know, worst acts, one of his most uh, unforgivable acts, I mean, he was forgiven eventually, but it was one of his most uh, sinful acts was the murder of Uriah. This is the, the, the terrible story where David was involved with Bathsheba, who was the wife of, the, of one of his soldiers. And uh, David had Uriah killed. He had General Yoav order him out into a particularly dangerous part of the front where he was killed by the, by the Ammonites, uh, the, an enemy. So Yoav essentially had Uriah murdered. So, so he was rep- reprimanded very sharply by, by the Navi for this, for, for, for doing this terrible thing. The Gemara has all kinds of explanations. It wasn't as bad as it sounded, but David ordered Yoav to David ordered Yoav to kill Uriah, and Yoav did it. Yoav was his commanding officer. David sent a, a message to Yoav to place Uriah in a place where he'd be killed in the battle. He sent Uriah to his death, and Yoav obeyed. So, so Yoav, according to this Gemara, Yoav should not have followed this order. This order was illegitimate. David was improperly killing Uriah. Uriah was not guilty, and, and Uriah was. Uh, Uriah was, uh, Uriah was not actually guilty, according to this approach of the Gemara. Yoav, therefore, should have refused the order. And Yoav was someone who, therefore, was, was guilty. So Yoav's position apparently was, my king tells me to do something, I do it. Therefore, he was angry at Amasa for not listening to, to an order, and he killed Amasa. But they were tzaddikim v'tovim. They were actually correct. Amasa was correct in not killing, in not mevatel the terror of the Bnei Yehuda. Avner was correct in refusing Shoal's order to... Uh, to massacre Nov, the condom of Nov, and Yov was wrong, this Gemara seems to say, Yov was wrong in following the order to, exit, to, to send Uriah to his death, because even though the king had commanded it, it was, it was wrong because, the, because Uriah, was not, Uriah was not deserving of death, and therefore the king had no right to execute him, and therefore Yov should not have obeyed that order. It's actually interesting, because elsewhere the Gemara says that David was justified in killing Uriah, because Uriah, act, Uriah was actually murdered by Malchus. Uriah had refused an order of David. David had ordered Uriah to go home and be with his wife, and uh, Uriah refused. Uriah said, my, my, my comrades are on the battlefield. I refuse to go home. So, so the, according to one approach, that was, the, the Gemara is not really clear. The Gemara says Uriah was guilty of being murdered by Malchus. According to one approach, it was because he disobeyed that order. According to another approach, it was because he referred to Yoav as Adoni Yoav. He referred to Yoav as, as his master in the presence of the king. In the presence of the king, you shouldn't refer to any other human being as your master. But whatever it was, the Gemara elsewhere says that, Yo- that actually, actually Uriah was the Marib Malchus, and therefore David was justified, and therefore Yoav would have been justified, and, and actually he was the Marib Malchus, and not Yoav. But according to this Gemara, and, and, and therefore Yoav was justified in killing him. But according to this Gemara, the way Rashi explains, Uriah's death was unjustified. The, the Gemara itself in Kedushin goes, seems to go back and forth on whether, whether David's execution of Uriah was justified or not. According to this Gemara, as explained by Rashi, Yoav actually was wrong. Uriah's death was not justified. Yoav was wrong in killing Uriah. So what emerges from this whole Gemara is that even though, even though, the, Navi, even though the Navi says we have to obey the king and anyone guilty of disobeying the king is to be put to death, however, there's an exception, Rakazak Vehamatz, with that if the king tells you to do something unlawful about Dazara, murder, killing an innocent person, or um, even Bittal Torah, according to one, 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 one approach in the Gemara, even, even telling people to do a Torah, then we're not supposed to listen to the king. Rambam, 
In Shulchan Aruch, we don't have the laws of kings. Shulchan Aruch doesn't have a section of the laws of kings. But Rambam, who discusses the laws of kings, Rambam articulates this rule, the halacha, very clearly. The Rambam first gives us a hint in the Sefer Mitzvahs, where the Rambam talks about the, the Rambam talks about the mitzvah of the mitzvah of the king. So he says that the, he doesn't list obeying the king as a separate mitzvah, but he says there's a mitzvah to appoint a king. Som tas there's a mitzvah to appoint a king. Included in that mitzvah, the Rambam says, is that the idea of marbim malchus. This this halacha that we saw in Yeshua, that obeying the king is an, is, an, is an imperative and that it's punishable by death. That is part of the mitzvah of, of appointing the king, of obeying him. The Rambam writes that when the king gives an order, Again, he qualifies that we must listen to him as long as his command does not contradict any command of the Torah. And he implicitly tells us that if it does, we should not listen to him. Rambam says this explicitly in the Yad HaZaka. Rambam writes, if someone flouts, the, the first Ram says, anyone who's married by Malchus is uh, that Melech has Rishus to kill him. Um, even if he, Melech just says, go somewhere, and he doesn't go, or he says, you know, don't, don't go out of your house, and he does, he's Chayav Misa, the king has the right to kill him, he brings our pastor, is, is, is to be killed. Good. So he says, and the Melech, he's Rishus, Melech doesn't have to kill him, but the Melech has the prerogative to kill him. We saw the Matudah Savage said that they were telling him, you should not be Melech on your covered. But according to the Rambam, when it comes to killing people, the Melech does have the right to decide not to kill him, but it's a Rishus, he has to kill him. But then the Rambam qualifies, this is in Paragimel Halacha Ches, in the Laws of Kings, but in Halacha Tes, the Rambam adds, If someone flouts a, a, an order of the king because he's involved in a mitzvah, even a, a minor mitzvah, he is not liable for murder malchus, and the Rambam explains of a famous rabbinic rule, Divri harav, divri ha'eva, divri harav kodman. When the orders of the master are in conflict with the orders of the servant, Hashem is the master, the king is his servant on this world. Divri harav kodman, the words of the king has precedence. So that's even if the king doesn't tell you to do something against the Torah. That just means that you're involved in a mitzvah. You're going to do a mitzvah, and the king wants you to abandon your mitzvah and go and go learn Torah. Even that, the Rambam says is uh, you listen to Hashem and you do the mitzvah. It goes without saying, he says, if the king actually orders you to be mevatel mitzvah, the king says you travel on Shabbos or eat non-kosher food or something, we certainly don't obey the king if he tells you to actually be mevatel a mitzvah. The Red Vah says that the source of the Rambam is the Gemara and Sanhedrin, that we don't listen to the Melech, we don't listen to the Melech if he tells you to do something which violates the Torah. And even mitzvah kala, so the Gemara, we saw the Midrash says about Azara, the Gemara says murder or bitl Torah. Even a mitzvah kala, the Rambam says, even if it's a, a relatively minor mitzvah, even that, the king has no authority to tell us to violate a mitzvah. And that is, so that is the halacha, that, that, that's, how, that's how it is generally, uh, generally, the post can generally accept this, that the, that the king has no authority to tell us to violate a mitzvah. I saw in Rav Asher Weiss, contemporary author Rav Asher Weiss, in his Minchas Asher, in discussions of Din Melchusadina, the principle that, that the law of the government is valid, is recognized by halacha as valid, he says, but the government, that just means in, in civil affairs, in, in, in questions of money, the government can, can make rules. But he says, of course, the government can't tell us to disobey the Torah. The government can't tell you to work on Shabbos or to eat non-kosher food. And he brings a strange thing. He brings from the Gona Vilna that in the Megillah it says that before Esther approached Achashverosh to invite Haman to the party, 
she was uh, very nervous about doing so. She said, the king may kill me. Uh, the, the, it's, it, going to the king is punishable by death. So she asked Mordechai to declare a three-day fast. She says, go establish a fast. Let the Jewish people fast and pray for me. Fast for me, and I'll fast as well. Fast for three days. According to the Midrash, those three days occurred over the first days of Pesach. They included the first day of Pesach. So fasting meant, even though it was Yom Tov, you don't normally fast on Yom Tov, certainly on Pesach, you have to eat matzah, you have to eat matzah and mar. So Esther decreed a fast, according to Chazal, even though that meant violating the mitzvahs of matzah and mar. So how could, how could Esther do that? So we saw before that the Ralbag said, the Ralbag said on, on the, on, on the on, we said there are three, we saw three pshatim in what rakhazak v'amat mean. One pshat is it means don't obey the king against the Torah. One pshat is he shouldn't be mochel and is covered. A third pshat the Ralbag brought was that rakhazak v'amat means that, that, and the third pshat was that it means uh, be strong and lead. But the Ralbag mentioned that you have to obey the Melech, and, but not if it's against the Torah, unless, an exception to the exception is, unless he says it was Lefisha, unless the Melech wants to supersede a law of the Torah in a temporary, uh, temporary way. This is the concept called Harasha. A Navi, or according to the Ralbag, a Melech as well, is allowed to temporarily suspend the mitzvah of the Torah. The paradigmatic example is the story of Elio at Mount Carmel. Elio Bar Carmel he had an epic showdown with the prophets of Baal. Elio wanted to show the people that God was the Hashem is the true God, and then Baal was uh, Baal was phony. So he had uh, he had a very dramatic showdown. They they brought two bulls, and each one chose a bull. Elio chose a bull. The prophets of Baal chose a bull. Each one would offer the bull to his god, and the god that would answer would be seen as the as the true god. So the prophets of Baal prayed and did their rituals for hours and hours, and Baal didn't answer, and Elio mocked them and said, maybe Baal is sleeping, or he's in the bathroom, or so on. And then Elio brought his bull, and he soaked it with water, and he prayed to Hashem, and a great fire came down, right, right, the fire came down, right, the, 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 one of the most dramatic stories in Tanakh, and everyone said, Hashem, who will okay. You visited uh, Mount Carmel? Very good. So the... So the Gemara raises a classic technical Talmudic objection. The Gemara says that you're not allowed to bring karbanos outside the Beis HaMikdash. When there was no Beis HaMikdash at certain periods in history, people were allowed to bring karbanos locally. But while the Mikdash stood, Elio was during the second temple, the first temple era where the first temple stood, you're not allowed to bring a karban outside the Beis HaMikdash. Even L'Shem Shemayim, you can't do it. Same, same way we can't do it today. We can't bring karbanos outside Outside, according to many, many, many authorities, even today, where the temple doesn't stand, the, the halacha still applies. Certainly, while the temple stood, you're not allowed to bring karbanos outside the mikdash. So the Gemara says that was called a harasha, a special one-time dispensation. A navi has the right to to make a special one-time dispensation to violate the Torah. So the Ralbag seems to seems to extend that to a melech as well. The Ralbag seems to say that a melech has the right also to to make a uh, to make a harasha. I'm not sure, again, what that means in practice. And, and then the, in all these cases we discussed, if the king orders you... Avadazar might be different. Avadazar, there's no harasha on Avadazar. But if the king orders you to murder somebody as a harasha, it's, it's an extreme... It's, it's, an, it's, an, it's, an, it's an existential need of the state to, to murder an innocent person or to... Uh, Dover had to raise an army. He ordered them to a battle Torah. It sounds like that was a one-time thing also. So I don't know why, according to the Al-Bag, that there is a dispensation for harasha, so I'm not sure what the parameters of that are. But... 
The, the Ralbag says it's a harasha, and that, when we talk about Mordechai, going back to Mordechai, when we talk about Mordechai and Esther ordering the Jews to fast, they're not eating matzah on Pesach, the, the simple understanding is that's like a harasha. They were Nevi'im, Mordechai and Esther were listed as Nevi'im by, by Chazal. A Navi certainly has the right to issue a harasha. But Rav Asher Weiss brings from the Gon of Vilna, in his commentary to Megillus Esther, that he says that the reason... They, they, they had the authority to order people to fast and, 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 and skip the mitzvah of matzah that year was because Esther was the queen. And as the queen, she had the right to issue such an order because we have to listen to the, the sovereign when he orders us to do something. Rabasher says, what are you talking about? And the king orders you not to do a mitzvah? That, 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 that's a clear gemara, the, we, we, the clear rambam. We, we don't listen to, I don't think he even brings the rambam in the gemara, he just says, Pashat, the government has no authority to order us to violate a mitzvah. So the gun is indeed uh, very strange. The, the, nor, normally, normally the government has no authority to order us to violate mitzvahs. Maybe what the gun meant is similar to the Sir Al-Bag. The Al-Bag says that the Al-Bag makes some kind of distinction that even though the king can't just routinely order us to violate mitzvahs, but as a, as a temporary harasha, the king has the same authority that a navi has. Maybe that's what the gun means. The, the, the same way others learned that Mordechai had the authority because he was a navi, the, the, the gun meant that as a king, a king also can make harasha. The king can also, through his uh, authority as a sovereign, he can also issue harasha, a temporary uh, one-off dispensation to violate a mitzvah. Maybe that's what the Ralbag means. Maybe that's what the Vilna Gaon means. I'm not exactly sure. I'm not sure, again, if, if once we give the king this power to make a harasha, where does it end? What's the limit on that? So I actually don't know. I, this requires further further even. You know, what, what are the limits? What are the, what's the scope of the king's power to issue a harasha? I'm not sure. But in general, the rule is, as the Gemara says, as the Rambam says, the king has no authority to, no authority to issue people orders to violate the Torah. This, this, was, this, was, this was not really discussed la halacha in, through most of Jewish history. We have these Talmudic sources, but they, typically we were not involved in the... We were, not the, we were not our own governments for most of history, most of the last couple of thousand years, and governments told us to violate the Torah, we would try to ignore it. In Soviet Russia and other, other oppressive regimes, obviously we would try to keep the Torah as best as we could. But in modern Israel, this has become a major issue. In modern Israel, where the government is not controlled by, by those who observe the Torah. The, we have an influence, but, but we don't control the government. So there are questions where, where, where soldiers who are issued orders to do things that, that, that a soldier or his rabbi or, or a great posek believes is against the Torah. What should the soldier do? What is the soldier supposed to do? Is he supposed to obey an order? So in, in modern law, in Western law, certainly after the Holocaust, the Nuremberg trials, we also have this principle that there are certain orders which are blatantly unlawful. We, we, we executed Nazis. The, the defense of I was just obeying orders was not a defense. Uh, we, we established the rule some orders are so heinous and so illegitimate and so fundamentally against human rights and decency that there is no excuse of obeying orders. You're not supposed to obey such an order and you're guilty of murder and crimes against humanity if you do. So everyone agrees that we have such a doctrine. The question is, what does that mean in practice? If, uh, if, if the Israeli army orders a soldier to do something which he feels is against the Torah, so how far do we take this right? Can every soldier simply make decisions about which orders he wants to obey based on his, uh, both as a matter of law and as a matter of halacha? So as, as, as Jews, we, we're, we're interested in the Torah's view on this question. So what is the right of a soldier to disobey an order because he feels it's against halacha? This issue came to a head, perhaps the most uh, intense and passionate discussion to this point, came to a head during the disengagement from Gaza. Uh, obviously, that was a very controversial and very traumatic period for, for Israeli Jewry, both the religious and the non-religious. Politically, you know, the right and the left were on opposing sides, and within the religious community as well, 
there were hardliners, more conservative religious thinkers who felt that returning Gaza to the Arabs and disengaging from Gaza, not only was that bad policy, they felt it was against the Torah for a variety of reasons. Normally we're not supposed to give Eretz Israel back to the to non-Jews, we're supposed to retain Eretz Israel for ourselves, so normally ceding territory itself is, a, is, is, is potentially a violation of, a, of Torah law. Destroying shuls, there, 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 were, there were cases involving the destruction of, uh, of Sifrei Torah, Tefillin, Mezuzah, shuls, Batei Midrash, all of which are normally things that violate the Torah. They, they were damaging property, the private property was being damaged in the course of the disengagement, private Jewish property. So there were some, there were some conservative Rabbanim, conservative, I mean politically conservative, orthodox politically conservative Rabbanim, who felt that the disengagement was a violation of Torah law, and therefore they, they, they felt and they made their position known, some great Datilumi uh, Rabbanim, that soldiers who were ordered to cooperate, to, 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 to carry out, to implement the disengagement, should refuse those orders. They felt such orders were against the Torah, even though, again, they were Zionists, they believe in the state, they believe in the authority of the government, they believe the government is legitimate, but they believe these orders were, were not legitimate, they violated Torah, and again, they might not be as fundamentally crimes against humanity as genocide and murder are, but it doesn't matter. As we saw in the Rambam, even Mitzvah Kala, even a relatively minor mitzvah, we saw in the Gemara that Bittel Torah, when Amasa was ordered to Mavatel Torah, even that was something that uh, he, he refused to do. I mean, maybe, maybe even is not the right word. Bittel Torah is a tremendous... Uh, tremendously uh, serious uh, sin, but it's not, it's not literally life and death, it's not murder, but the, we set aside Torah for many other purposes, to, 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 to go earn a living, to, you know, to take care of many of our affairs, but nevertheless, as even Talmud Torah, which on the one hand is a great mitzvah, on the other hand is, is uh, we have a lot of flexibility in when we learn Torah and how we learn Torah and, and so on, as we discussed previously with the mitzvah of uh, learning Torah day and night. On the, that's a great paradox in learning Torah. On the one hand, it's, a, it's, why it's Talmud Torah connected Kulam. It's a tremendously important mitzvah, unparalleled. On the other hand, we have a tremendous flexibility in, in how much Torah we learn and in, in taking time to go to work, to play, to play with our children, to go to weddings, to take vacations, and so on. So nevertheless, Amasa said, in this case, he felt that being Mavatal Torah was, was a, an order to violate the Torah, which he wasn't going to do. So a number of the various great Datilu Mirabanim argued that in order to implement the disengagement, orders to the, the orders of the implementing the disengagement were blatantly against Torah, and they should be disobeyed. Soldiers in the army should refuse to carry out such orders. Other, other great Chachamim in the Datilu community disagreed. Rav Aaron Lichtenstein, most notably Rav Aaron Lichtenstein, perhaps, he, he may have been the most prominent figure who argued the other side. He, in general, was politically more dovish. He, he was not as uh, conservative. And he was a much more uh, you know, nuanced and not a, much, much, much more sophisticated and moderate uh, thinker in many ways. He argued that these orders, he certainly agreed to the principle that an unlawful order in order to violate Torah, if the government tells you uh, travel on Shabbos and there's no military need for it, or eat non-kosher food and there's no pressing military need to do so, he also agreed, of course, we should disobey such an order, it's illegitimate, and we should disobey it. But he felt that the, the, that, that the Gaza order should not be viewed as illegitimate. Now, to some extent, it was a political question, a military political question. Is this engagement good for the Jews or bad for the Jews, where people held passionately uh, divergent views? But Rev, Rev Lichtenstein made a number of arguments which were broader than the specific issue. A, a key portion of his argument, again, it's, I, I can't say I fully understand his point, that he developed his, 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 his arguments at length in a, in a sophisticated and subtle way, but he argued at length that especially when things aren't clear. Nobody really knows for sure, he felt, what the result will be. 
military strategists and pundits and experts on both sides predicted different, uh, different outcomes of the disengagement. Reasonable people can disagree, he says. So in cases like this, where certainly he says, if the government is right, that this engagement will, will, will be of great strategic value to the Jewish people, then of course it's not an unlawful order. Then of course the government has the right to order us to do it, at, uh, if, if, if indeed its concerns for Pikuach Nefesh are as great as, uh, are, 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 are as great, are as great if there's a reasonable chance of Lichtenstein felt, this engagement will save lives in the long run, or that it will preserve the Jewish demographic character of the state, which is a paramount value. Moreover, if Lichtenstein said disobeying orders itself can damage and critically damage the morale of the army, the cohesiveness of the army, an army that uh, doesn't have discipline that allows soldiers to make individual decisions, which orders they feel like following is not an effective army. So even though, of course, we agree that some, there is a red line, some orders, Israel has a doctrine called Degel Shachar Misnoses, a uh, black flag flies. Israel has a legal doctrine that some orders are so blatantly, obviously unlawful, they shouldn't be followed, and a, a soldier can be criminally prosecuted for following it. But that's very limited. That's only when it's so blatantly obvious. It's not just when a soldier feels it's against his personal conscience. But it looks and especially in these cases where the legitimacy, the, 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 the wisdom of the policy is a subject of genuine debate. Nobody knows for sure. We ha- who decides? He says, we, we can't have, a, we can't have a, a nation, an army, where every soldier makes his own decisions about what policy is appropriate. In cases where there's good faith disagreement about what the desirable policy is, we have to defer to the government, we have to let the government may be the decider. It, that's how society runs, that's how civilization works, he says, that, um, that it's true if the order would be blatantly and obviously against the Torah, it would be bad policy and therefore against the Torah because it violates various halakhas, it's true, we would have to disobey it, but we can't decide that on our own. The policy is, can be legitimately defended, he felt, and we have to defer to the government to make policy, and then once we accept that there's a legitimate defense of the disengagement as policy, then we can't call it violating the Torah because the, the stakes are so high that if the government is right, and on the contrary, it will, it will save human lives and it will be uh, crucial for the preservation of the state. And therefore, he didn't fail that this was an example. Basically, Luxembourg was arguing, to simplify his view, he was arguing that in cases where there are legitimate policy questions, a soldier can't just say, well, I disagree, and therefore I'm not going to follow the order. These gemaras, these rules that a, that, that a soldier mu- that is supposed to disobey an unlawful order, that's when it's clearly something which is black and white, unquestionably against the Torah. Again, we can argue the details. All these examples, Shaul HaMelech felt he was justified in killing Nov. David HaMelech felt it was worth drafting the people in Yehuda. So we can argue that there were legitimate arguments both ways. That, that We can argue that uh, maybe it wasn't so clear back then, and still they felt... In their view, it was against the terrorists, so in their view, they could refuse the order. But nevertheless, Rav Lichtenstein says, uh, practically, this is how it has to work. We, we, can only, we have to limit this doctrine of disobeying orders to orders that are clearly black and white, uh, un, in, unquestionably against the Torah. But to say that every soldier can decide, I think this is an illegitimate policy, and therefore it involves Torah violations, and therefore I won't do it, that's not acceptable. Or, and that'll lead to, uh, that'll destroy the army, he said. It'll lead to a divided and disjointed army. It'll destroy unit cohesion. Therefore, he said, because of these concerns, that there has to be discipline, there has to be unit cohesion, and uh, we can't let soldiers make their own decisions about policy. He felt this was, this was a case where, where the right to refuse an order did not apply. But the bottom line is, as we've seen, everyone agrees that an, that an order, would, in, in, the, in the ideal simplified case, where the order is clearly against the Torah, everyone agrees that order should be refused, with the possible exception of a harasha as explained by the Ralbag, as, 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 as noted by the Ralbag, and that's possibly what the Gona Vilna was saying as well. What's a harasha? How do we decide what's a harasha and what's a blatantly illegitimate order? That is something which I don't understand, which we have to uh, consider further.